Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about why a bad week for big oil is a good week for the climate. We speak to Adam Gardner, co-founder and co-director of Reverb. And we have music from Adam's band, Gusta. Thanks for being here. So we talk a lot in this podcast about geopolitics and big changes in the world and how different powers are fighting each other for what the future is going to look like. But this week has just been so inspiring because it's been about the triumph of small actions and how they can snowball into enormous transformations. Real David and Goliath stories from shareholder activism to what can be achieved through the courts by a dedicated group of individuals who really want to see change. I think it's we're going to get into this, but this basically the last week has been characterized by major victories over big oil that would have been basically unthinkable even a few years ago when the stranglehold of big oil on the world in terms of politics and economics just seemed so profound. But now it seems that we're breaking through. Christiana, why don't you kick us off and let us know what's going on? Well, thanks, Tom. I really do think it's a David and Goliath story or several David and Goliath stories. And the fact that they all come one right after the other within the space of a week is... Uh, quite quite extraordinary. We start off with ExxonMobil, where a shareholder with, frankly, close to negligible uh, number of shares was able to get uh, seats on the board and be able to oust several board members who are continue to be climate deniers or at least obstreperous to any responsibility on climate on the part of Exxon and put their own climate conscious and climate responsible directors there. So all of this is incredibly exciting. And even more exciting is the fact that we were able to reach Andy Carsoner, a longtime friend of ours, just minutes before the shareholder vote counting was confirmed through which he is now confirmed as the third new director on the ExxonMobil board of directors. How exciting to have someone like Andy sitting on the board of ExxonMobil. We asked him to please share with us the genesis of this incredible shakeup in the governance of ExxonMobil. Here's what he said. It is so exciting. It is so exciting. Thanks, Christian. It's the brainchild of a um, hedge hedge fund investor named uh, Chris James, uh, CJ, uh, who is uh, self-effacing and self-actualized enough to know that he wasn't the right person to be a director. So he's not sort of a Carl Icahn figure of how do I get in there and get on the news and all of these other things. And he had um, I think in his own road to Damascus, which, you know, I began in uh, in oil and gas in uh, the uh, 80s myself. And, uh, you know, although uh, my road to Damascus began in 1998, you know, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome <laughs> to realize that this right. is on. And Chris and Chris uh, realized this a few years ago. And, you know, I've always been obsessed with this thesis of natural capitalism and how you account for nature on the balance sheets of our corporations and of our economies. And and that if we would you know, sort of break the tyranny of accounting and account for the things we measure the treasure and account for the things we all 
should be valuing oxygen, water production, carbon sequestration. Um, we'd already have a different way that we uh, manage ourselves economically. And Chris had come to this as well. And so he sought me out. And, and of course, we had a great uh, brain meld. And he said he was putting together a team to uh, take on ExxonMobil. And of course, I thought, good luck with that. You know, that's... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's never been done. It's never been done. Nobody has ever it's had. Been, it's been tried many, many, yeah. many, 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 many times, but it's never been done. There's been many attempts at the wall, but there's never been a successful hostile proxy contest against a major oil and gas company in the history of the industry. And, and, and so, but I'm in Texas and I'm with my father caregiving through a very long, challenging year. And I know Christiana had, had shared with me a lot of her challenging year and had given me a lot of fortitude and resources and books to read about these things. And, and, and I started thinking, what is the most important, you know, audacious kind of thing I could do? Well, it certainly would be to help Chris and, and help galvanize this team. And, and so from, um, from COVID uh, Zoom land, we began a series of calls with investors and, and mounting and mounting and, and got uh, CalSTRS, one of the biggest pension funds in the world, to back us very early, which very grateful, gave immediate legitimacy. And then CalPERS joined a larger pension fund in New York Common and then Legal in General, the UK's biggest. So now all these folks are out saying this is a very serious case and everybody ought to listen. And of course, Larry has written the letter for BlackRock these past years, and it, it became sort of a measure. I mean, we really correlated the business case against the ESG case, but with precision, not sort of qualitative aspiration, but with absolute business correlation and precision to say you ignore these contingent liabilities and these inexorable energy transition uh, strategies and the and the uh, um, inevitable uh, necessity of addressing climate change with clarity and and a plan. You ignore that, and it erodes your balance sheet, your risk, your market position, your competitive posture, your returns. And Exxon has notably gone from first to worst because of its stubbornness to to uh, um, maintain an orthodoxy that uh, let it down very poor capital allocation of of drill at any cost. And, and so we made that case. And then, then when the independent shareholder groups, uh, um, uh, ISS and, and Glass-Lewis, uh, very important, sort of uh, endorsed us, it was like a shock across uh, industry because these are very <laughs> conservative uh, groups. And they made a very, well, they wrote up a 30-page report saying how compelling the case was. And um, so then all of a sudden we thought, oh my God, this is actually a 50-50 proposition going into this election. And um, and then, as you know, it was a bad day for Shell. It was a bad day for Chevron. Um, it was a very bad day for Exxon. And, and you know, I, I should emphasize, I'm from Texas. I'm sitting in Texas. I went to a school that's a major feeder to these uh, 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 um, platforms, to these corporations. Um, they're good people. They're, these are engineers. They're technologists. They're scientists. They're some of the greatest aggregation of intellectual capital we have that need to be directed to problem solving, how technology meets nature in a way that is sustainable for us all and profitable for enterprise. And you, you can't address what you don't acknowledge. And so I think that's the, that's the, um, that's the big breakthrough is that I think people get to see this model of, of a small little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can. And, and if, your case, <laughs> if your case is, is, is solid, and if you have the people who are credentialed 
uh, in good governance and 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 know uh, uh, that they want to strengthen the enterprise and and turn it to the future we need to have, then the shareholders backed it, and and so we feel really great. And Andy, if if I can may say so, it, I think if I, I don't mean to try and correct you, but I think it's a really good day for Exxon. It's a really oh, it was yeah. a really yeah. good thing for Exxon. Yeah. And right. uh, and just just to express this this um, respect for this, you know, you talk about getting Calsters in and then Calpers and then Legal in general, and they're starting to tell each other and all the different shareholders starting to watch each other. And then you mentioned ISS and Glass Lewis, people that probably most of our listeners have never heard of. These unbelievably influential proxy voting guideline people, listeners, please pay attention to ISS and Glass Lewis and, and the ability for us to begin to build coalitions of uh, investors Honestly, you've written a book that I hope a thousand people will follow. Yeah, I uh, thank you so much. I, 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 for me, you know, they, as associated with Stanford and MIT and uh, different universities now, and 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 um, I, that's what I'm thinking is that we are changing the playbook. That we are, we are, we are helping create a model of change that is not sort of uh, perpetual dissatisfaction and a degree of pessimism. You know, I hear young people saying, "I don't want to have babies in the climate and everything." And so, what you all do is so important because we have to believe in ourselves yeah. that we have designed this problem. We can redesign our paradigm with the solutions, and we, but we've got to first believe in what we can do to achieve it. And and so. This, this just felt like an outsized achievement and, and not on me. It's a, the village and it's you all. We walk on the shoulders of giants. And, and, it, and, and my feeling, you know, the biggest question people had was, you know, is this going to disrupt things unduly and just havoc and you're going in to throw bombs and everything. And, and it, nothing could be further from the truth. I am a believer that market-based solutions and scaling the profitability of doing the right things at a faster rate than doing the corrosive bad things is, is how we win. That, that until we have capital formation commensurate with the amount of capital that is doing harm or greater, we can't win. And, and there's no amount of tithing that it's going to you know, take us out or make us feel good about a project here and a project there. We have to change whole pillars. And, and so, Starting with the natural resource industries and the extractives, you know, Exxon's the fifth biggest emitter in the world by itself. Mm. Um, um, uh, starting with sort of the basics of uh, the intentionality of fulfilling what the shareholders have asked for, that we have a plan and strategy for net zero by 2050 co uh, co compliant with Paris. That's that's significant. The company has not yet been able to bring itself to say those things out loud. And um I'm eager to uh, engage with the fellow board members if I'm confirmed, elected, certified, whatever's next. Uh, and if not, I'm quite confident the rest of our slate will, because that's exactly what the shareholders have asked for. Wow. Andy, this is just so exciting. I can't help but feel that we have turned such, we have bent such an important curve with this, right? Um, I, I know for many people, it still feels like we're pushing the ball up the hill. But for me, this is like, wow, we got to the top of the hill. Uh, we still have to keep on pushing because it has to roll down faster. But there is now an inertia in the system that is completely unstoppable. Um, what, what is next for, for you or for Engine One? 
Well, you know, I suppose exhalation and a vacation would be great. (laughs) You know, the number one thing, and it's not just about Exxon, but it's about an industry that I started with. I grew up in Texas. If you didn't go to NASA, you went to the energy industry. And and I was talking with a very good oil and gas CEO last night, a person who called me when shale first popped and said, I'm going to have a water problem. The shale thinks, how can you help me with the technology? So, So there are good leaders with peripheral vision that are struggling to say, how do we supply the world, engage in a transition, be more sensitive about the environment, innovate faster. Um, But it takes to have that learning at the speed we need with the world moving fast, the targets we have, you must have humility. We must have the humility of peripheral vision. Speed bends naturally towards tunnel vision. And people begin reinforcing what they do as a matter of their identity. I need to do what I've always done because that's what I've always done and I was right before. It's the humility to stand back and allow yourself to be augmented with diverse views of the best people you can find. And so that's what's, it's not me coming into Exxon and doing something wildly different other than hopefully reminding everybody to pause for peripheral vision, get the inputs, get the right knowledge and and do what our sort of humanity demands that our corporations can definitely uh, um, uh, help service. So um, I'm super excited. I'm going to be with you. This isn't, this isn't our last conversation. I'm excited that it's my first, as, you know, uh, uh, dialogue. But uh, but listen, I'm truly inspired by you guys and Christiana, who I love so much. So, you know, thanks for Andy, bringing me. pause for peripheral vision because this is urgent. I totally love that. Totally love that way of expressing it. Thank you so much. Thank you for just all of a sudden taking our call. Um, we are very excited for you. We are very excited for Exxon. Uh, whether you're sitting there or not, you'll still have your finger in that pie. Uh, and uh, we're very excited for the uh, revolution coming on onto the entire oil and gas industry. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, guys. I look forward to seeing you guys. You back on soon for a <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. Teamwork. It's all about the team. And I mean, on that one, what's interesting was, I mean, there's been small shareholders who've tried to precipitate sort of mini revolutions at board meetings of oil and gas companies for a long time. But this time, that small revolution was supported by some major shareholders, right? I mean, that's what made the difference. Paul, you've been a student of this for a long time. What did you think? Ah, well, indeed I have. Indeed I have. I mean, it's funny, like, you know, you talk about this David and Goliath battle, but actually... It's David and Goliath together <laughs> fighting another Goliath. Big companies, big corporations have elections. Yeah, how about that? It's not just governments, right? Yeah. So we need to recognize that if you're clever, and obviously engine number one, we're extremely smart, and you put together a very strong case that a company needs to change the way it's operating, then you can go to the annual general meeting, which is like a parliament for a corporation. You can bring forward your resolution. And if the majority of shareholders back it, which they did, you get to kind of run the company. And I'm also delighted, just to say in Piasting, that one of the directors uh, elected uh, is Kaiser Hitala, who is from Renewable, uh, who used to head renewable products at Nesta, uh, who sponsored Wonderful sponsor, yes. So just to say, um, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's good to know. If you want to get on the board of Exxon, basically sponsor our response. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a direct link. Well-established career path, absolutely. But, 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 Paul, I think you jumped over one important step there. Um, 
Yes, you can be a very small shareholder if you have the guts and the vision and the determination to change policy, then uh, if there are enough shareholders to support you. But there is, that's A to B. And in between those two, you have to form alliances. You can't go being a completely minority shareholder and expect without all of the preparation to get a vote in your favor. I cannot imagine how much work Engine number one put in with those shareholders who do make a difference because Counselors has been a shareholder for a long time, but this is the first time that they actually stepped up. And it takes a lot of backroom work to get an alliance, a coalition of shareholders who will make a difference at the board vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, think... And just on that one, sorry, Tom, just Please. to say that actually there's just so much history there. And I was looking up this evening, um, Bob Monks, who, who, who was a wonderful kind of... Um, uh, grandparent of the corporate governance movement, uh, a, a genius, uh, first put forward to Exxon that they should split the role of uh, chair and chief executive and have a committee uh, looking at shareholder issues in 1992. And actually, there have been shareholder groups, climate activists, religious groups, the nuns with guns, as they were called, Sister Pat, all these people over three decades. And then finally, my friends, we won. So, so do we think? Because of course, this is a this is an end of all of that that you just described, Paul. But it's also a beginning because potentially, I mean, if you were another oil and gas major, all of them have got small activist investors in their portfolio who or who hold stock in the company. So, I mean, honestly, if I was a major oil and gas company now looking at this, I would kind of think, wow, the times come. You know, a small investor with a well thought out plan and a clear outcome that they're driving towards can now be successful in changing the government, you know, changing the board of these companies. I mean, this is the beginning of total revolution amongst these companies, isn't it? Okay. Let me offer a last thought. You know, that people, uh, I'm, I'm going to invent a little catchphrase, but we should all remember it. And, and, and the corporate world should definitely remember it. Climate change activists always win one particular battle. The last one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we didn't mention what other um, amazing wins were uh, were won by the climate movement this week. Although the little engine that could was 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 a big one, yeah. Yeah, the little engine that could was amazing. Um, also, we shouldn't forget that in the Netherlands, the court ruled against Shell, Shell not just in the Netherlands, but Shell with all its international operations, forcing them to cut their carbon emissions by 45% from uh, 2019 levels by 2030. That is basically the day after tomorrow for a company that makes very long-term decisions. Now, of course, they're going to fight that, et cetera, et cetera. But very interesting that the court now, for the first time, any court is actually having a resolution against an oil and gas company. And then... What happened at Chevron, Tom, Paul? What happened at Chevron? Uh, I'm broadly speaking of the opinion that Chevron were obliged to report on their Scope 3 emissions. and yes. also through shareholder resolution. That's the point. And for those of you out there who don't know um, what is Scope 3, I've done it before. Clay can replay the tape. Yes. Uh, roll tape. Here we go. Would you like to explain what scopes one, two, and three means? I would love to. Clay, could we have some tiny little explanatory music? 
listeners. Scope one, two, and three is the center part of greenhouse gas accounting. Scope one is the fossil fuel your organization purchases, and scope two is the electricity your organization purchases, and those are both in your audited accounts, easy to calculate. Scope three is everything else, and particularly for an oil company, it is the oil and gas that is combusted, the product from the company. Scope three is the product. Thank you. Thank you, Clay, for taking this in such good humor. <laughs> so for Chevron, that is all the oil and gas they sell all around the world. And having to calculate those greenhouse gas emissions is a major step forward in the accountability of that company to our world. And that, I mean, that's amazing. And to just go back to the Shell thing previously, if we've entered a period of history in which governments are passing laws that require oil and gas companies to actually reduce emissions in line with the science that is going to herald a complete transformation. Now, we should get into this, but I actually understand that our executive producer, Sharon, had a conversation with the person who brought the case. So maybe we should invite the listeners to listen to this fantastic mini-interview that Sharon Johnson, our executive producer, had with Nina Departa, who is the lead campaigner in Friends of the Earth Netherlands on the Shell case. So how long have you been working on this? What was the sort of timeline from from inception to actually get this remarkable result you've just achieved? So about five years ago, our director, uh, Donald Pols, he got the idea to sue Shell because Shell is the biggest biggest CO2 emitter, the biggest polluter in the Netherlands. Of course, we, we already had the court case against the Dutch government by Urgenda. Uh, and from that, we got the idea that we could also take big corporations that are accountable for the climate crisis to, to court. So this is about five years ago, five, six years ago. And then, of course, the, the research started about the company, about climate change, about uh, the specific responsibility of a company. And then back in 2018, we announced the case. So before that, it was all very secret. We were not allowed to talk about it at all. Uh, and then we were finally able to talk about it. So we uh, warned Shell, and then it took us took us another year to prepare all the legal documents uh, and and really officially start the court case in 2019. In 2020, December 2020, we got our hearings, four days of hearings, and now, yeah, the the win, <laughs> the outcome. Unbelievable. Well, that's but yeah, a lot of hard work and a lot of people and a lot of deep thought before um, before you know the moment of celebration that's kind of reverberated around the world. So, what does the win really mean? Like, how how does the campaign and the legal strategy connect, and and what does it really mean for the Netherlands and also for a company like Shell? which has operations all over the world, you know, huge operations in Nigeria and elsewhere, yeah. well beyond um, the shores of, a, you know, what is a relatively small country. Yeah. So this court case, we we uh, asked Shell to stop causing dangerous climate change. Or actually, we asked the judge to force Shell to stop causing dangerous climate change. And we said Shell is a globally operating company and that means that they have to at least follow the global average CO2 reduction that needs to be done to be able to still achieve 1.5 degree uh, global warming. And the judge uh, agreed with us. So it basically means that Shell has to reduce its CO2 emissions 
in 2030 by 45%. And not just from its operations, but also from its consumers. So it's in technical terms, scope one, two, and three. All the emissions that Shell is uh, responsible for have to be reduced by 45% globally. So this will have an, a massive impact on the company itself. It will mean that they really have to change their entire business model. It means that they will probably not be able to invest much more in new uh, sources of, of oil and gas um, and uh, definitely not being able to do what they plans so the investments that they planned in the coming years and where they will exactly change that's up to shell as long as they've reached this average 45 percent globally um, but not just for shell this will be a, a huge impact it it also means of course that other companies will look at this and uh, and see that that now companies can be uh, held responsible for the damage that they cause to the climate climate and it's not just countries anymore um, so this has an impact on Shell itself, but it will we will definitely we definitely see that this is a precedent uh, that is going all over the world. And maybe a third impact that I I already see happening is that it causes so much optimism within the climate movement. It we get messages from all over the world, and and people are so happy about this because we don't see a lot of wins within the climate movement within our fight against climate change. And when we see one, and especially one like this. It gives us so much energy to continue and 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 hope that we can still reach these uh, goals that we all set together uh, in Paris. Thank you. That's brilliant. Um, thank you for for using optimism because we 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 always think that we all exist somewhere on a spectrum between yeah. outrage and optimism, and we need both. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you cannot always be angry because you need some optimism sometimes. Yeah. Need both. It's the combination that makes us effective. So thank you yeah. for being a brilliant example of that. Um, yeah. And so how will you um, fight back when Shell contests the ruling as, they, as they've said that they will? Uh, yeah, we expect that Shell will uh, appeal. And of course, we will we will prepare for that. Uh, we, we will uh, go... We will we will continue this fight as long as Shell is causing dangerous climate change um, in court, but also through public pressure. Uh, and also, we already see that a lot of shareholders and investors are putting pressure on Shell. So all this pressure together is really the way to change Shell and change the fossil fuel industry, the the, the energy sector. Um, so we will, of course, continue in court, but we will also continue to mobilize people to put pressure on Shell. And I didn't mention before, but we had 17,000 individual co-plaintiffs, so Dutch citizens that joined our court case. And it's a win for all of them. Uh, not, And of course, it's a win for the whole world, but especially for them. I think when the COVID uh, crisis is all done, then we will have a big party. <laughs> Well, we, we are dancing in our respective homes along with you and, um, you know, keep us posted and uh, yeah. we really appreciate you making time in your busy schedule. Yeah, thank you. All righty. Okay. I mean, how fascinating to hear from Nina. And I love the fact that the, the case said that Shell were endangering human rights and lives by threatening the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement. And it just goes to show, Christiana, how when the world came together in 2015, it set the 
seen for all kinds of people to pursue all kinds of agendas in so many different places. It's very, very exciting. Otherwise known as the Paris Effect. The Paris Effect. Hmm, I like that. So every week we read a couple of uh, little messages that we get from you wonderful listeners. And this week we got one from someone who calls himself a 14-year-old kid trying his best to understand the complex issue of climate change and help combat it. So thank you very much, Iron Man 11. Really appreciate your encouragement here. And then we have... Something but, else. But from... we should say Iron Man 11 actually makes a specific point, which I think is very nice. One day I hope to be like you, Christiana, which I think is a lovely comment, a lovely compliment for you. Yeah. Very noble yeah. goal, that. That's, you know, especially, that's a great aspiration. Especially coming from a boy, I must say. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm, I, are there iron women? Like, it's a question. Is it a gendered thing? Of, of course there are iron women. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Sharon's messaging uh, us to say uh, all Sharon's women are made of steel. Sharon's all women are made of steel. Quite but, correct. Okay. <laughs> On to the next one. This is, um, we invited actually people to be a little bit more like Georgina to make a review. And this is Jet Set Jilly uh, from Great Britain. And she says, this Game Changer podcast has the highest caliber of contributors and discourse that I have ever had the privilege to listen to. Bertrand Picard, Andrew Steer, Jens Stollenberg. Wow, just wow. Thank you, and please keep doing this excellent work. Christiana is an inspioneer who is lifting me out of the darkness and propelling me to change my career and stand up to be counted. Can't wait to watch Breaking Boundaries with my nine-year-old son. This podcast is complete spiritual and intellectual nourishment. Eat it up. That is so nice, isn't it? That's wonderful. That's it so is, lovely. Thank actually. you so Thank much you. for leaving this review. Please send your reviews in. We Please love them. do. And it's actually a good moment to point out so that tomorrow, Breaking Boundaries yes. is coming yes, out. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank I've you. been waiting you. so long. Uh, Christiana, one last, one last plug for Breaking Boundaries, which is on Netflix tomorrow. Okay, this is going to be the most important film you have ever watched. I already said so, but let me say it again. Watch it with someone who is younger than you because that is the person to whom we owe our responsibility. Nice. Mm. So, Breaking Boundaries tomorrow. Don't miss it. It's going to be amazing. Um, and also, we have an amazing interview for you today. Oh. So today, we have Adam Gardner. Now, Adam grew up in New Jersey, um, in the wooded hills with more horse trails than roads, he says. And after meeting Lauren Sullivan, an environmentalist and campaigner for Rainforest Action Network, and now his wife, the two co-founded Reverb in 2004 to activate fans, musicians, and the industry towards issues associated with environmental pressures brought about by the touring industry in the music business. Um, the spirit of environmentalism made so much sense in the context of Adam's experiences of touring with his band, Gusta, and their campaigns have raged since then from ending illegal logging to bring your own bottles to concerts to tackling single-use plastics, etc. This is a great conversation. They've done so much. You'll hear so much more. Sadly, I couldn't join this conversation for, uh, for some reason. I had something else I had to do, but you two did an amazing job, as you always do. So here is the discussion with well, Adam. Well, thank you, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, thank you, no, indeed. I appreciate it. it. Um, no, thank you. That's good and uh, here's an amazing conversation with Adam, and we will be back as ever afterwards. See you in a few minutes. Adam, thank you 
you so much for joining us today on um, Outrage and Optimism. You, um, as we have already introduced you, uh, as vocalist and guitarist for Guster. But if you will allow us, today we actually want to focus on the other part of your life. And you have many parts of your life, but we wanted to um, focus our conversation on the NGO that you and Lauren, your wife, founded 18 years ago. 18 fair, years ago. 18, one eight. Is that correct? That is, yeah. I can't, it makes me feel old, but yes, it's true. <laughs> and you I think it's a long it's service also, award in climate change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's also true that it was actually Lauren who uh, brought greenness to your soul and to your daily activities. Is that correct? Yeah, we were just, you know, we were teenagers when we met. We met in college. Um, so I was 19 and she was 18. She she came in always the environmentalist and I came in always the musician. Uh, been touring in my band for nearly 30 years, which also makes me feel old. Um, and, she's, and she's been working in the environmental space ever since I've known her. Uh, she worked for Rainforest Action Network in California. She advocated for green space in New York City when we lived there. Um, and I think through her experiences, kind of by, through our two worlds really, we came up with reverb. From my end, I was a musician and living and loving uh, an environmentalist. So it became one myself just because I wanted to make sure she still loved me. <laughs> and so, so I started good. doing- That's a good policy to buy. Yeah, very good policy. It's Insurance me and policy. the planet. You know, yeah. are you in? Yeah, it's a good strategy. It's, so far, it's worked very well. Good strategy. <laughs> so, but, but you know, it's, in all sincerity- through living and, and learning from her, living with her and learning from her and living as an environmentalist and with an environmentalist and then going out on tour and seeing the exact opposite of everything I was doing at home happening out there where everything is disposable. Anybody who's been to a concert, all they have to do at the end of the night is look down at their feet to know that there's mm -hmm. a real impact here negatively with all the plastic on the ground alone. Never mind 20,000 people driving to and from the show um, and all the energy that goes into into it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a significant footprint that at the time um, I was on tour with bands like uh, Maroon 5 and John Mayer and Dave Matthews Band. And we we're all having similar feelings of, of regret um, and, and lamenting the fact that, you know, what we loved was damaging the earth. Um, you know, even the guys in my band Guster, we would kind of joke about our tour bus and nicknamed it the Earth Eater. Because we felt yeah, badly we read about that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like it's a little bit scary, but that's great. It's, it's call a thing by its name. Well, right? just you know, again, just acknowledging, but uh, you know, using humor for us to feel better about it. But it wasn't. It, we weren't feeling better about it. I think I came off the road one too many times, uh, and home to my then girlfriend, now wife, then co-director of Reverb, Lauren. You know, saying, God, it's just such a mess out there. And all these other artists that we're touring with feel similarly. And she's like, well, what are you going to do about it? And we all just shrugged our shoulders. She's like, well, that's not enough. <laughs> what can you do? And so, Good on really, her. Good on yeah, her. Yeah, so Reaver was really born out of, you know, two desires. My desire being, how do we cross the chasm between artists and musicians' intentions and their actions? Um, and from my wife's perspective, how do we use the immense cultural power and reach that music has to, yeah. to, to truly amplify and expand the, the environmental movement. Now, remember, we started in 2004. Green was still just a color then. Like the, 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 the consciousness of environmentalism, at least here in the States, was 
for a very small subset of people, the hippie crunchy types. And that was mm. it. It was not a mainstream issue or concern. Right. Um, so at the beginning, our main focus was how do we bring this out to the mainstream? And we were very lucky to work with artists like Maroon 5 and Jack Johnson and John Mayer from the very beginning of our uh, of our uh, start as Reverb. And so that's been huge. So, so, so I have one comment and one question, Adam. My yeah. comment is a comment of full, deep, and sincere regret that we did not plan this conversation with you in advance so that we could have had Lauren speaking right next to you because honestly we owe her a deep She's the missing woman uh, a, yes yes definitely so a deep debt of uh, gratitude to her that she was the one who who put this um before you and and i guess challenged all of you to uh continue doing what you love and what your passion is but doing it more responsibly so could you please and i know that she's very busy at the reverb office today but please give uh, give her from us our gratitude attitude for um for having sparked this interest um in you. So that's our comment. And my question is, do tell us then explain to us because it's quite unusual what you the niche that you um carved out for yourself as an environmental NGO. Can you tell us first of all what does reverb mean and what do you do? Uh, again, the, the, the credit goes to my wife, Lauren Sullivan, with the name for Reverb. Yay, but... Lauren! Here's to Lauren! <laughs> so from, from my perspective, Reverb is, you know, it's a knob on a guitar amplifier that allows this uh, echoic effect on your instrument. Um, okay. From her perspective and why it has a nice double entendre is that it's also rever reverberations and the fact that it starts mm -hmm. with an artist who has this audience and has a microphone and has a platform online and in person face to face with these very unique relationship that musicians have with their fans really unlike any other celebrity like i'm not a big fan of the term celebrity influencer um, but musicians do have a very deep and meaningful relationship with their fans even a band at my mm. level which is not known over uh in your neck of the woods um you know, we have fans that are, you know, we write these lyrics and they tattoo them on their skin. You know, this, they, like wow. what we say and what we are and what we feel. That'd be good lyrics. Um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully. People are going to happen forever. <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't choose to do you that. Know, but, Clay, you know, Clay, who was a musician, a touring musician uh, a couple of lives ago, he calls it an insane amount of power or influence over your audience. That's the way mm. he describes it. It is. And what's unique to the environment is that you can be a, a working example of what can be done. And so that's the approach we've taken with musicians and their fans is, well, let's get them walking the talk on tour and having the tour itself be a display of what mm. can be done to, 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 you know, to protect people in the planet. Um, and so it's, it's very powerful for an artist to say, hey, tonight's show is carbon neutral or climate positive. We're supporting all these organizations locally, nationally, and globally to, to, to fight the fight. And we want them here. We, we set up an eco-village of these organizations so, they can, so fans can plug right in and take action on the spot at the shows. And we give them incentives to do so, right? They can win a signed guitar from a band or you can win ticket upgrades or whatever it is to get them to pay attention. But honestly, the fans, when given the opportunity 
and are right there and at a peak emotional moment where being at their, uh, a concert of their favorite band, they want to get involved, especially if the band yes. is saying, here's what we're doing and we want you to join us. We're not using single-use yeah. plastic water bottles backstage. Uh, we'd like to encourage you to use reusables at the show, and we've set that up here. So, so you know, I didn't answer your question in full that's what reverb means, is the idea is that it reverberates out from these artists because of that unique relationship. Love that. Love that. A lot of what we've done, especially in the beginning, is on tour because that fan to fan, that well, that, that band to fan face to face interaction is so important and special. And then also it's just, you know, it's the it's the largest platform artists have to engage their fans and also show. It's the, it's the largest impact they have negatively on the environment too. So that's where we need to, where we focus to minimize that footprint. Let me ask you just, if, if I can ask you about the eco-village creation, like I'm an eco-village person. I'm involved in an eco-village in Scotland called the Fintorn Foundation. I love eco-villages. I've been to others. Um, and my question for you really is like, well, my experience of eco-villages is, is they're wonderful places, but they really come alive when there's music, when there's art, when people's hearts are being touched and we're being kind of connected by the magic of music. You know, you are the music whilst the music lasts and, and uh, me becomes we at that exact moment. So looking at it the other way around, how do you turn a, a concert or into an eco-village? What does that involve? So we, so we actually fold Reverb staff onto an artist tour. So, for example, Billie Eilish's world tour, we put two staff on the team, folded in just like a crew oh. member. Um, so, you know, same as a crew so member. So you embed that, them. You embed them into the touring group. Wow. A hundred percent. For how that, long, Adam? For how long? The entire run of the tour. They're, they're, uh, they're a part of the team, no part of the family to make systemic changes happen wow. on the tour. And getting all the different things in place because we found that we can, you know, we can do contractual riders and we can make suggestions and consult, but everyone out there has a job to do and their plates are full. And it's clear that there's so much work to be done that Mm -hmm. it necessitates, if we're going to make significant changes happen, it really necessitated it to be someone's job out there. And that's what, that's what we do. So we have, we have a number of folks that are no stranger to um, being on tour, which is, which is a skill in and of itself because you have to live on a tour bus Indeed. W- with everybody. It's a survival <laughs> skill. <laughs> it's a bit. It's fine. Look, let's say I pitch for that job. So say if I'm trying to get a job at Reverb, I'm going to be on Billie Eilish's world tour for however long. And what am I doing on that bus? What's my job? You are up first thing before everyone else to get to the venue and make sure that catering for breakfast is is as we've advanced it and making sure that all the waste collection and waste management is in place. Uh, you're going through with the general manager of that venue where we already advanced it, but still day of, <laughs> we've learned, you still need to do it again and do a walkthrough. Here's where we're going to set up the Eco Village in the concourse. Here's how, how many square feet we need here. We need a water hookup for our free water refill stations. We will be receiving donations for bottles out there and, and all these different things because it's a, it's a, a comprehensive program. Um, so making sure that even simple things like that catering is in order, that we don't have a bunch of styrofoam and disposables out, um, for the, for the band and crew. And what what about food itself? I mean, do you, do you pay attention to the kind of food that's served and what what does that look like? A hundred percent. So we have two different programs backstage again. So the whole approach to back up one second, the whole approach we take on tour is dual pronged behind the scenes backstage. How do we make the tour itself? as eco-friendly as possible and minimize its negative impacts. 
and on the front of house out to the fans, how do we maximize the positive impacts with the 20,000 people that are there that evening and influencing them and making actions happen there on the spot? So I mentioned the single-use water bottles, eliminating those and having fans refill at our free water stations. You know, the cheapest merchandise item they can buy that night is the band custom water, water bottle. We have a custom water bottle that they can take home. Obviously, we want them to reuse it and, and ditch disposables altogether. Um, but through that program alone, that's called Rock and Refill, we've eliminated over 3 million single-use plastic water bottles at <laughs> concerts, not just... You know, we're not factoring in the, the fact that hopefully they then take that home and continue to reuse, which we right. we have plenty of stories on, but we, it's hard to really put data against it. Where on, at the shows, we have real hard data to know that, that we've eliminated over 3 million bottles that way. So, yeah. So, so Paul, as your, for your job interview, yes, you have to be able to get up early and work get all ready, day. Get ready, Paul. Get ready. Get up early. That's not sounding good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we'll see how we go. So I'm on the tour. I get to the venue first. I mean, in terms of food, are, are you focusing on like, um, for example, uh, reducing or removing meat from diets or is, is it more really about the, uh, the packaging or is it both? It's all of it. So, uh, sorry, I, I went off on a, on a tangent here. So our food programs, we have two, Farm to Stage and farm to family. So farm to stage is the backstage part where we source local farm food from family farmers within, we try as close a radius to each venue as possible. Um, so supporting farm systems along the tour and making sure that wow. we connect those to food caterers and getting those in there. And then that, yes. That needs it, a lot of prep work before you get there. A yeah, lot. So, so, you know, the structure of reverb is we have, it's, it's not that different than, uh, in a lot of ways, we consider it like NASA, where we have ground, con- we have ground <laughs> mission control. We're talking rocket science here. We're talking like <laughs> space, right? All those people in the, okay, the control room. I got a picture of it. So go yeah, for it, so NASA. You have mission, you have, you have mission control, mm-hmm. and that's in Portland, Maine here, where we have everyone who's in charge of all the logistics. Because that can be fueling biodiesel for, you know, X number of buses and trucks, wet hosing them at the venue that morning. So they go in, okay, how many gallons does everybody need? All that. Getting the farm food to the caterers and the resources there ahead of time. Coordinating all the local volunteers that we have to come in and engage fans. It's fans engaging their peers at the Eco Village, mm-hmm. um, as well as bringing in on all the local and national nonprofit groups. Wow. Every little, every step of the way, it's a lot of logistics. It's, um, so that's the mission control. And then the embedded staff that we have on the tour are our, are our major toms, so to speak. <laughs> and how's wow. it funded? Because, I mean, that's, you know, I'm an NGO person, so I'm always like wondering, okay, what's the, you know, because I, I use the word business model. That's not really the right term, is it? Because we're not-for-profit organizations. But, I mean, you've always got to have that, that income to be able to fund the staff and the work. And so how does that work? We've done it every which way. I mean, our goal is to make this as accessible as possible to various artists and where they're at. Um, so some artists, they, they consider it part of their production. They just want, it's a cost of doing it right. Um, mm-hmm. and we just, we give them a budget and we talk about a program and they, they do it that way. They, they see us as just part of the production team. Um, others, wow. others, uh, have sponsors that they, that they want to bring in or want us to help bring in. And obviously they need to be in line with, with our ethos and mission, but we've been able to do that. And that's been helpful too. Nalgene is a big uh, partner of ours with our rock and refill program. They make reusable water bottles. Um, and that's been super successful. Um, again, we've raised over $2 million for environmental causes and when needed our own work on those tours. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, and some people attach it to the tickets. Uh, so some artists will just do a, a dollar or a euro or a pound a ticket. Well, no, that, that makes sense. I, I can see that you're going for multiple sources and, um, sorry, I'm like 
firing all these questions at you, but um, the big one that we've come up with, we've talked to, you know, um, all kinds of people, uh, Jane Fonda, we were talking to Massive Attack who made a, who made a record with Christiana speaking about climate change. Um, the, the kind of dream, I guess, for the climate change movement is that we, we can build upon the success of the artists, really, or be in some kind of relationship with them to raise the profile. And yet I've also heard it said that there, there can be issues of polarization that, you know, um, that you can divide the, 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 the band up, you know, uh, and, and, and people, pe you know, you, 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 there can be issues around how your followers are. I, I just wondered um, if, you, if you could give some insight to our listeners about how... Um, you know what what kind of works and what's the right relationship between artists in this movement to to grow and build and 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 just get the message out there I, I, you bring up an important point and it's all about knowing your audience and nobody knows their audience better than the artists themselves so we work very closely with them and their management to make sure that our approach and our messaging and what our focus is within the environmental movement hits home with with their fans and makes sense so obviously if we're talking to Jack Johnson fans that are already very much environmentally minded, that's a certain level of conversation that we're going to have that's different than a new country artist like Casey Musgraves coming in. And even honestly, we've even changed messaging depending on where we are geographically, especially in our, <laughs> you know, in the States. I mean, you know, a 40 day tour takes you through very different parts of, of this continent. Yes. So that's also really important. And, and again, a lot of that also gets cooked into us. We always like to involve not just, we, we do work with large NGOs like World Wildlife Fund and Sierra Club and NRDC, and, and we actually are a partner um, of the United Nations Environmental Program as well. Um, but we also find it very important to bring in local community organizations too. Also, it means a lot to them to have 20,000 people all of a sudden aware of who they are in their own communities. And it also ties mm. in those community concerns and issues that will be relevant to those audiences. Um, so it's, it's, it, it all kind of is cooked in and works well. Uh, Adam, and in your diversity of approach that I very much understand and appreciate, um, I'm curious how you approach an artist or a band that you haven't worked with before. Those that are already, let's call them, in our space, in our tent, are probably very easy to approach because you just bring a certain methodological approach to what they already stand for and the messages that they've already been giving. And they are, I'm sure, entirely delighted and grateful for that rigor and of your methodology and the completeness of your um, engagement. However, do you limit yourselves to those that are already inside the green tent or do you actually try to approach those who haven't even thought about it before um, and those who are much, much farther away from our tent? How do you approach them? Because the, before you can even touch the fans, you have to enroll the artist, the band itself. How do you do that? It's a challenge. And I mean, to be honest, there's so much work and there are a lot of artists that are wanting to do something but aren't sure how. So to be honest, a lot of our work is still educating those artists about what they can do. Um, again, crossing that chasm between intention and action. 
Yeah. That said, absolutely, we're trying, especially with climate change and climate justice, we are trying to reach out to more diverse artists, especially artists of color. And that those are the conversations we're having right now. We, we've been lucky that we have worked with artists like Drake and J. Cole um, and Wiz Khalifa. But the challenge is, is how do we make sure, and these are exactly the conversations we're having now, how do we uh, make it clear to the artists and their fans, especially if we're talking about BIPOC communities and artists, that you know, climate justice and, and these communities of color bear the brunt of the worst that climate, the yes. climate crisis brings. So yes. we found that the way that we've been connected to them, and a lot of them have their own stories of, you know, even in their own rider, there was an artist we were just uh, working with that in their in the contractual rider, they had a lot of stipulations about air quality because they were suffering from asthma because of where they grew up. Uh, and that is a direct, right. wow. you know, it's a direct correlation to uh, environmental justice and, and the not my backyard ends up in their backyards. And so that yes. is uh, connecting those dots is, is a big part of what um, we're working on currently um, and, wow. and making sure that we are reaching out and people um, are understanding the, the complete and 100% overlap between racial justice and environmental justice. Yeah, I know that it's, it's absolutely beautifully put. Um, I mean, you know, as, a, as climate change people, we know that, that, for example, some of the communities who suffer most seriously in the world would be, for example, in Bangladesh, where it's a very low-lying country, you know. But then actually within um, advanced economies like the United States, you've got these the same issues of uh, racial justice as linked to environmental justice. We, we have a, a large and growing group of listeners, very exciting. Um, how can they help? How can they be part of this movement? How can, how can we really support the work of, of reverb and artists around the world who are trying to make a, a difference to these problems? Yeah, I mean, for sure, it's, you know, I would, if, if I was just speaking to listeners now, it would be look at your own spheres of influence and your own impacts. So there's two things, right? You, what can you do to change in your own world to have less of an impact? So start at home, then go to your workplaces and look around and what's happening there. What does waste look like? What's energy look like? What's the water use look like? What are your impacts? Because um, once you start, I mean, this is, I'm speaking from 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 experience because this is what happened, right? We said in the very beginning of this conversation that Lauren opened my eyes. And once I started looking through that lens, it's hard to stop. And I saw it happen with my bandmates and I've seen it with our peers now as I engage other artists and, and I have been engaging other artists now for almost 20 years, that once you start looking through that lens, the questions start escalating and you go, okay, wait, what's yeah. happening in, in, in my church or at my temple or what's happening in my school? Wait, what, what's happening in our community? What's the idling policy here or, you know, in town or at this business? Yeah. Why, all of those things. Why is the ambulance, you know, idling at, at the hospital when it's supposed to be making people healthier and all these sorts of things. So that for sure. And then plugging into, you know, use your voice, plugging into, Again, start start locally. Like, what are the environmental issues and organizations in your community that are fighting the good fight, and how can you help them? For Reverb specifically, we have a new campaign that we're launching called Music Climate Revolution, and part of this Music Climate Revolution. I'm I know I'm famous I for singing, but not when there are professionals on the podcast. But <laughs> no, we would, but can it definitely I, deserves can, a song. Can I say now on record what I said before we started recording when Adam said that Music Climate Revolution? I said okay. I totally love all those three words individually and what they stand for, but putting them together is like the maximum. I am so excited. So what is it, Adam? 
So this is a natural extension of what Reverb's been doing for 18 years, where we've been working with artists and their fans and, and using that collective power. Um, but then we also want to be very focused on climate. And because I think the biggest thing that we're, the biggest hurdle that we're up against culturally is that people feel helpless and hopeless. And I know this, yes. you know, and, yes, and, yes, and, yes. and here's the name of your podcast, right? The, the optimism <laughs> part. And I think that's really important. And what we found is that we need, especially in the music community, people need to understand that, A, that that's billions of people that care about music, that, that love music and make music and are involved in an industry that, um, unlike any other industry, music has the potential to do far more good and positive impact for the climate than its own footprint. So yeah. because of its cultural power, because of its reach to literally billions of music fans that are passionate about these artists, we have the potential to really take a good bite out of the climate crisis and really start mm -hmm. reversing its negative effects and impacts. So, you know, we're starting where we started as let's try to reduce our negative impacts and let's try to be carbon neutral. We're now shifting to let's be climate positive. Let's do more than just being neutral. This is too urgent of an, of an emergency for us to be neutral on. We need to actually fight against yep. this. Um, so, yep. you know, right before the pandemic shut us down <laughs> on tour, um, we were able to squeak out uh, a our, the world's first climate positive tour with the Lumineers. And we were able to calculate their footprint, neutralize 150% of that footprint, while also doing all the things we've been talking about, supporting local and national nonprofit groups along, along their tour route, uh, supporting local farm food and farm systems, reducing plastic waste, all the things we can to shrink the footprint itself, while also, they're from Colorado, while also, you know, with vetted and high quality carbon fighting projects support the building and funding and creation, the additionality piece of these, of these projects that directly eliminate greenhouse gases and measurably so. So that's a big part of what this campaign are. There are three basic tenets of the campaign. It's funding and building the infrastructure um, necessary that directly eliminates and reduces greenhouse gases that also support diverse communities. So we're looking at both some larger projects, but also smaller community-based projects that can support BIPOC communities and BIPOC-led organizations. Um, we want to, of course, reduce our carbon footprints in the first place, understand what they are, and do what we can to minimize them and systemically change the way the music industry functions. So this isn't just musicians and their fans. We're talking about labels. We're talking about agencies. We're talking about management companies. We're talking about studios, um, festivals. So it's it's all of music. We're even talking to Broadway right now. Um, and then again, harnessing music's collective voice, the power that we have collectively to make change, to, to, to demand the change of businesses and governments around the world. We've done some of this already um, and we've had success when we bring artists together. Um, but up until now, Reaver's been very successful working individually with their artists and their fan bases, but now it's time to bring everyone together. Again, going back to hope. Here, here. Yep. Holding the mirror up and saying, look what we've accomplished as the music community. We've done this with fans. So we can say, hey, Dave Matthews Band fans, we've eliminated X number of 
hunt, you know, I could actually look up some of these stats if you want. So let's see, over the band's oh, career. Oh, how cool. You have them right there. <laughs> well, and there's NASA, remember. Mission Control, he's got their data at his fingers. Right. Well, I've got 17 is. screens in front of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the uh, you know, so we've looked at this, and it's, uh, that's a big, important part of all of our work and has been for a while. But again, collectively now, just hold that mirror up at the end of a tour, at the end of a campaign and say, look where we're at. Look what we've accomplished together. We have Fantastic. to do this together. So, for example, on Dave Matthews' band tours, uh, the band and the fans have eliminated over 121 million pounds of carbon dioxide from the air. They've raised over $2 million uh, for environmental causes, taken almost a million individual actions for the environment, eliminated half a million single-use plastic water bottles at shows, supported over 1,000 nonprofits uh, and 1,000 local family farms, and uh, 140,000 pounds of food waste were composted. So th these are just... Just showing, like there is an impact. We can do this. Yes. We, it, you yeah. don't have to lose hope. It's. I think it's so easy as an individual person to go. What am I going to do about something as huge as as climate change and global warming? Like global warming, it sounds so unattainable. But the fact is, is together we can, and we have been, and and there is real impact, and we have to. We have no choice. It's imperative. <laughs> You it's are so, so much put. part of our family, Adam. You have no <laughs> idea how much you're part of our family. So our, we have a, a, a growing uh, family that we call ourselves Stubborn Optimists because we have exactly the attitude that you have just described, right? A, that yes, this is complex and challenging, but we can do it. And there are going to be barriers and challenges around uh, along the way, but we're not going to stop just because it's complex and difficult. We're just going to go at it no matter what. So here, here is a formal invitation for Adam and Lauren and Reverb and all of your um, colleague bands and artists that you touch to join the growing family of stubborn optimists because you have just described it actually much better than we can. <laughs> and this is Christiana's day job. So, so look, Adam, honestly, the, the, the kind of energy and the enthusiasm that you have and the can-do attitude is absolutely infectious. We can, we must, we will. That's very deeply held and heartfelt. So we have to, uh, unfortunately, finish, uh, but we always finish all of our interviews asking our guests one absolutely critical question. And here it is. Um, you know this podcast is called Outrage and Optimism because we believe both are absolutely necessary to have an effective response to the challenges that we face. But on that continuum between outrage at one end and optimism at the other where would you position yourself i i wow that's a very <laughs> tricky question and i understand. you're our first guest to actually think about it so congratulations <laughs> on that it could be, could be the future i'm trying to figure out what, how to even uh quantify the scale so if i guess if, if if i'm i would say i'm definitely more towards optimism i would say i am the out the outrage drives the action, but my emotion is optimistic. How's that? So that, I didn't nice, give you- Nice, nicely put. I didn't give you a, a, a number scale on that, but I, I would say it's it's that. It's it, they, they operate in two different parts of my being. Yeah. The outrage drives the action, but the emotion is optimistic. It's kind of that 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 somewhere between the head and the heart and the and the kind of brain and the body. It's It's a very interesting distinction, so- 
yeah, I'll hold, I'm, I'm going to hold that particular formula, uh, maybe understand myself a little bit better through it. And certainly thank you for, for, for a very fascinating picture. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And you know, you're talking about the head and the heart, and I just it, it, I come back to why music. Why why am I doing this in music? Besides the obvious, which I, I am a musician, but I think the reason why I'm so passionate and so excited is I see that potential again for yes. music to have such f- heads and tails above and beyond its own footprint, positive impact to actually mm-hmm. fight the climate change, a transformational effect. Yep. Well, and music yeah. moves people. When you talk about the heart, it, it music's designed to open your heart. And if you're mm. at your favorite band's concert and they're they have all of this, they walk. The first thing you see when you walk in there is the 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 band and Reverb's Eco Village, and they've already been messaged ahead of time on social media to plug in and do this and all the great things that the band's doing to make positive impact happen on their tour. That's the optimism that music can provide. And, that, and I think that's, and again, the action too. And, and sometimes it is to say, look at what's happening here. This is not fair. This is not just. And we, have, and we have to be upset about this and we have to do something. So it is. It's touching both the head and the heart at the same time. And that's what music always has done. In very complimentary ways. Fantastic. Mm. Adam, thank you so much. The Thank only you. regret that we have is that Lauren is not here with us. Um, I know. I will send her your best. But other than that, best. it has, please do, please do. It's been a fantastic conversation. Very inspiring. As I say, you're totally a member of our family. So thank you. Thank you very much for um, so for what you're doing. And can you give us the date of when you're going to launch uh, Ju- yeah. Music Climate Revolution? Music Climate Revolution will be launching June 3rd. Um, will be, you know, the artists will be putting out social media. Um, we have a, a, a number of wonderful artists and industry leaders that are part of this. And you can go, if you're listening right now, to musicclimaterevolution.org or reverb.org and find us there. We have an action and resource hub there for fans and for bands and for industry, various industry leaders, where they can start plugging in and taking action right away. Wow, that's brilliant. Okay, Reverb.org. All listeners, please go directly to that website. Let's do this together. Thank you so much, Adam, for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Christiana. Thank you. So I was so sad to miss that conversation. What a great person. What an amazing story. Uh, And what a great discussion. What did you two leave that discussion with? So... You know, I am hosting a little concert here at home next Saturday. And it's a little one because the Ministry of Health has restricted attendance at these um, events to 30 people. I don't think but, it's a little one now that you've announced it on Outrage and Optimism. Do you want to give us your address so that everyone knows where it is? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to make a reservation and only those. The first 30 people will get in uh, in order to uh, be within the law. But um, I, I hope to have it much more popular later. But here's my point. Ever since the conversation with Adam, it has really changed the way in which I'm thinking about what I hope to be the first of many concerts here on the beach in my garden, Ocean View, because we're so looking at obviously no plastic bottles. Everybody's bringing their own metal water bottle with them. People are getting together and carpooling if they're coming from far away. Otherwise, they're just walking here. So it's really 
I mean, this this is a tiny, weensy little concert. But what I love about the conversation with Adam is that it sparked this um, awareness that even at music concerts, we have to be aware of our emissions. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I cannot um, compliment Adam enough for being really just a holistic thinker. Well, uh, the two of them. Um, and art touches us, music touches us. These fans come together. The famous phrase, you know, you are the music whilst the music lasts. We're all kind of like these islands, right? But, you know, the music is the bedrock in a sense that kind of connects us. Music brings us together, to quote Madonna. But when everyone's together, then Adam creates an eco-village. I'm in an eco-village now. What a fantastic place that is. Uh, an eco-village is a space where people can kind of explore community and sustainability together, and it's fun. Or some of the amazing causes that they support, like farm to stage, like local food coming into the concert. So people are eating from, you know, food from farms nearby. Um, like you said, uh, rock and refill, uh, bring your own uh, reusable re uh, um, bottle, and so much more. And I think... It's really just a way to sort of proliferate a new way of thinking, a new way of being, a new way of living. And I, I so support artists in kind of using their platforms, as we've said many, many times on this show, uh, to kind of connect the dots and, and, and help change people together. Yeah. No, it was a great conversation. I loved, um, I, I loved lots of things about it. I mean, I love the fact that it was born out of, you know, his desire to cross the chasm between music's, music and artists and their intentions and actions. And then also his wife's perspectives around how do we use the cultural power and reach that music has to amplify and expand the environmental movement. So I thought it was a very beautiful sort of origin story, those two things coming together to create that outcome. And I also thought, um, I loved that he talked about the fact that bringing an individual awareness to your own and then your own community's climate footprint is actually a tool to empower us not to feel helpless in the face of climate change. That's something, Christiana, you and I have written about in our book um, a great deal. Actually, there's an enormous amount of anxiety out there at the moment, people feeling deeply worried about climate change. But all the evidence is that when you start taking responsibility for it in whatever format makes sense for you, then you begin to feel like you're part of a great generational endeavor rather than subject something that's beyond your control. So I thought that was very insightful and how great the work he's doing. It's just so inspiring. I was really taken by the fact that this was born out of the perceived distance between him and his wife, Lauren. She, an environmentalist, right. an activist and campaigner, um, and he, a musician. And so in order to close that perceived gap, they both together founded this NGO to go straight into the middle of where does art meet climate change? I thought that was so beautiful that out of something that was deeply personal to them, their relationship as a couple, now they have grown that, right? It's, it's almost like putting so much organic fertilizer on a tiny little uh, tree that is just coming out. And then you see this huge tree that comes out. Now you have this movement in the um, music industry uh, that has come out of their personal commitment to each other. And the other thing that I thought was quite fascinating is the process that they use to educate the other bands or the other music groups. They actually take one of their people who has been very well educated and trained in how to get to zero emission concerts, and they embed them in the other music group or in the other band. Tom, I don't know if you remember that when we were at the Secretariat, we always asked the COP presidency 
to embed someone from their team into the secretariat to work with us. Right. Why? Because we wanted to have that full knowledge so that we could work best with it. And that embedding of one person from one team into another mm, team yeah, is yeah, yeah. such such a transformational way of working with each other as opposed to just saying, okay, let's have, you know, weekly calls of two teams that are physically separate from each other. But the embedding of one into the other is just so effective. And I was delighted to hear that that's the way that they are going about it. Totally. Let me just leave listeners with one little thought. Um, we talked about music changing things and for people, for lovers of slightly obscure music, there's a brilliant composer called uh, Moondog, who actually, in some people believe, is the father of much of minimalist music. But he wrote a beautiful song. You can find it on Spotify or anywhere. And it just, it's, I'm not going to sing it. I'm tempted if I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> oh, no, you're not going to sing it? Come on, you can't do I might give you just a verse. I might just give you a verse. And it, honestly, that look it up. It didn't take a lot of encouragement, did it, really? I mean, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. How no, quickly I, I, we went to oh, that. No, right, yeah. no, 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 you don't no, need to no, tell no, me I'm beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's right. <laughs> okay, so the song, look it up, everybody. It's called Enough About Human Rights, and it's by Moondog. Enough About Human Rights. And the song goes, enough about human rights. And then you can guess the rest. What about whale rights? What about snail rights? What about seal rights? What about eel rights? And it goes on and it's mesmerizing and it's beautiful and you will cry if you have a heart. Moondog, enough about human rights. And we can make music about the cause that we work with and it will change us. And that's a good thing. Yeah. So, Paul, I have it. I've just looked it up on my screen. Thank you very much. Should I listen to what come up, came up on my screen or should I wait for your recording of this? <laughs> there is. Uh, uh, actually, Clay has just said he's going to put a link to the song in the show notes, which tragically means that I'm not going to be able to sing it. But it is a beautiful piece You'll of have very, to wait for very the album. moving. Yeah. It, is, it, is, it is, to be honest, the most kind of biodiversity aware piece of music ever written. And it, it, will, it will make you cry if you have a heart. But speaking of music, as ever, we're going to leave you, the listener, with some wonderful music. And this week, um, even better, we're actually playing a piece of music from Gusta, which is the band of our guest this week. And um, Adam has allowed us to play what is basically their biggest number. So this song is called Satellite. Oh, Wow. It's their most How popular cool. song. How nice. Thank you so much, Adam. It's great to have you on this week. Thank you, Adam. Um, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. So here you go. Thanks for joining us this week. Bye. Bye. Bye.
So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of this podcast. You have made it to the credits, which means you're very good at listening to podcasts. The track you just heard is Satellite by Guster. Guster is an amazing band and has a large body of work ready for you to experience. If if I can recommend your next track, my favorite song by them is One Man Wrecking Machine. That's because when I was in my teens, my friend Pat Ziegler burned a CDR of Guster songs for me. Don't tell Adam. And left them in my car. I listened to Guster for an entire summer nonstop and have continued to be a fan ever since. So links are in the show notes to follow the band. I just saw that they have a show at Red Rocks in Colorado next month. And I know we have quite a few listeners in Colorado. So go see them live and take action on climate while doing it. But for real, having Satellite play it on the podcast, it's it's a bit surreal. So thank you, Guster. Okay, Breaking Boundaries is being released tomorrow, Friday, June 4th, and we've been hyping it for weeks. So you know what to do. Link is in the show notes to go watch it on Netflix. You need to go watch it. We'll be announcing a special episode coming up soon regarding the film, and you don't want to be left out. So follow Christiana's words, find someone younger than you, and watch it together. I keep getting asked by friends what the movie's like. So guys, I have not seen the movie. I really, I really can't wait to watch it. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson and our producer is Clay Hernell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mancilla-Herman, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. And our hosts are Cristiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Thank you to our guest this week, Adam Gardner. Attention, fans, artists, tours, venues, promoters, festivals, everybody. Reverb is launching Music Climate Revolution today. And you're one of the first people to know about it. Music Climate Revolution unleashes the cultural power of music to tackle the climate emergency with a goal of making the entire music industry climate positive, eliminating more greenhouse gas pollution than it creates. And that's a definition of climate positive that Tom Hill would approve of. If you want to learn more, the link is in the show notes to take action today and spread the word. Reverb.org. Really, really cool. Okay, earlier in the episode, we read off a listener review or two from Apple Podcasts. We love reading what you have to say. You know, it doesn't matter if you're 11 or 1100, although if you're 1100, you might want to ask the 11-year-old how to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. But regardless, leave us a rating and review, and it might end up on the show. And at Global Optimism is how you stay up to date on the climate. So please give us a follow and message us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Okay, a bonus episode coming your way. (gasps) We're full of surprises. So hit subscribe and we'll see you then.